The following sermon was preached at Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. Please turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 48. Uh, This morning in our series on the story of Joseph in Genesis 37 through 50, I have the privilege of speaking to you from Genesis chapters 48 and 49, which we just heard read. And again, thank you, Brother Marco. It is a blessing to hear God's word read in the public assembly of the saints. Amen? There's just something so uh, wonderful about that. And I'm so glad we're able to do that. Now, as far as the drama of the story of Joseph is concerned, uh, these two chapters seem almost anticlimactic. I mean, in chapter 42, we have that long-awaited moment where Joseph's brothers come and they bow before him in fulfillment of Joseph's dream back in chapter 37. And this culminates in that great dramatic moment in chapter 45 where He reveals to them who he actually is. And they and we are left to wonder, at least for a moment, what he is going to do. Will he forgive them? Will he love them? Will he exact a terrible revenge? Is this his chance to get even? And and I I have to confess, in the (laughs) wickedness of my own sinful heart, there are so many times I read this story and I want him to take revenge. Haven't you ever had that? You're reading it and you're thinking, oh, come on, Joseph. Use all the power at your disposal. Have them dragged out screaming, begging for their lives. But he doesn't do that, right? Uh, There's just this beautiful emotional reunion. And then there's a second dramatic climax of sorts where Jacob learns that his beloved son Joseph is not dead but lives. He is still alive. He's stunned by the unexpectedly good news, and this culminates in the joyous reunion of Jacob and Joseph, father and son, in chapter 46. And then we come to chapters 48 and 49, and and dramatically speaking, there seems to be a kind of a letdown. Uh, Jacob blesses Joseph's sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. Uh, Jacob blesses his 12 sons uh, and speaks concerning their future, And Jacob dies. Now, to be sure, there is a poignancy here. This is a poignant scene, a moving scene. Jacob, whose presence has loomed over nearly half the book of Genesis. If you go back and see where he first comes on, I mean, more than half the book of Genesis, we have the presence of Jacob uh, looming over everything that happens, and he is about to die. And these are the last recorded words of one of the towering figures of the Old Testament. Uh, But seemingly, we we, we do not have anything happening here as dramatic as what has happened over the past six chapters. Now, that may be true dramatically, but theologically speaking, these may be the two most important chapters in the entire account of Joseph. What is happening here? 
at the deathbed of Jacob was of vast importance. And it, it, it showed in a remarkable fashion the, the eternal plan of God. As has been emphasized throughout this series on Genesis chapters 37 through 50, the story of Joseph is a long study in the sovereignty and the providence of God, and it's a deep study of the gospel. And we see both the sovereignty of God and the advancement of God's plan of redemption in the events of this chapter. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you for your word to us this morning. I ask you now that you would enable me to accurately and boldly give the sense of of, of what is happening here, uh, that you would give to all of us eyes to see and ears to hear what your spirit is saying to your church through your word, that we might be instructed, that we might uh, be uh, taught, uh, that we might be uh, corrected uh, by your Holy Spirit. Uh, Unto you be all the glory and honor and praise through the preaching of your word this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, what is taking place here in these two chapters? I mean, the events themselves are very easy to describe. Jacob is very old and close to death, and he pronounces a variety of blessings on all his sons. The first part is recorded in chapter 48 and focuses specifically on Joseph and his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. Then in chapter 49, all of Jacob's other sons gather around his bed in order to be blessed. Now, while these two chapters stand together, the events of chapter 48 uh, set Joseph and his younger son Ephraim apart from all the brothers. Uh, In particular, Ephraim receives from Jacob the blessing of the firstborn, indicating that the special lineage that is being traced throughout the book of Genesis will continue through his descendants. And we'll talk more about that lineage in in a few moments. Now, as chapter 48 opens, we read in verses 1 and 2, After this, Joseph was told, Behold, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, and it was told to Jacob, Your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. This is very straightforward. This is very typical. Jacob is ill. He's dying, actually. Joseph is informed, and he rushes with his sons to his father's side. There's no hint yet of the important developments that are about to take place. And let me say again, all that happened, or is about to happen at the deathbed of Jacob, is of vast importance. And it showed, in a remarkable fashion, the eternal plan of God. Isaiah 46, verse 10 Uh, says this, speaking of God, he declares the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. And in Ephesians 1, uh, verse 11, we read, in him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. In the scene set before us, God is working all things according to the counsel 
of his will. And this was going to be the most remarkable event in the life of Jacob. More important than the appearance of God to him at Bethel. More important than his years with Laban. More important than his experiences at Peniel. And why do I say that? Well, in that great New Testament record of the Old Testament men of faith, Hebrews chapter 11, God took from the life of each of the men recorded there the, the, the salient features, the, the, the main, the key features of their life which characterized them as men of faith. And there are many surprises there, certainly, but the record of Jacob, I think, is the most surprising of all. God selected one incident in this deathbed scene as that which pleased him the most in Jacob's life. In Hebrews 11, verse 21, we read, By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. This seemingly unremarkable, not very dramatic scene is memorialized for all eternity in Hebrews chapter 11. So as I said before, these two chapters are far more important to the story of Joseph than they first appear to be. The main purpose of Jacob's life is fulfilled in what he does here. I mean, this is the very reason for which the nation was preserved in the first place. So let's look at this a little more closely. In verses 3 through 7 of chapter 48, uh, Jacob speaks to Joseph. He refers to his vision of God at at Bethel, recalling the all-important promises made to him by God back in Genesis 28. And most importantly, he elevates his grandsons, Ephraim and Manasseh, to the status of full sons, on par with the rest of his sons. We read in verses 5 and 6 of Genesis 48, And now your two sons, who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt, are mine. My my sons, he's saying, Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. And by implication, all the rest. They have become to Jacob as sons. We'll talk about why why that's important uh, in a moment. Uh, Now, interestingly, um, this later on, okay, because they're now sons on par with the rest of the 12, um, this will result in Joseph's descendants through Ephraim and Manasseh being viewed as two separate tribes. So that when the land of Canaan is allocated, Joseph, through his descendants, he receives one-sixth of the territory, not one-twelfth. In other words, he receives a double portion. And why is that significant? It's significant because the double portion of the inheritance affirms that it was Joseph who was designated to be the firstborn now, in place of Reuben. Now, Reuben was actually born first of the 12. But the status, the preeminence, the blessing of the firstborn, that bypassed Reuben, and it came to Joseph. Joseph's status was that of the firstborn, though not born first. 
And we see the reason for this in Jacob's words to his son Reuben in chapter 49. Let's look at what Jacob says to Reuben in chapter 49, verses 3 and 4. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might and the firstfruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. He must be thinking, oh, pretty good. Until the very next word. Unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed. Then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. And that is a reference to a particularly wicked deed carried out by Reuben back in Genesis 35, where we are told in verse 22 of Genesis 35, while Israel, or Jacob, lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine. He had relations with his father's concubine. And Israel heard of it. And now, this, now it's bad enough that this was sexual sin, right? Uh, it, it, it's, it's not only wicked in that it was sexual sin, prompted certainly by sinful lust, inappropriate lust, but it was also an act of sinful rebellion. In lying with his father's concubine, he was challenging Jacob's position as head of the household. And although just one brief sentence is devoted to the incident here, make no mistake about it, it was a wicked sinful, immoral, rebellious act. And very interestingly, all that's said about it is that Israel, or Jacob, heard of it. And that's it. We don't hear any more about it. Jacob seemingly takes no immediate action against Reuben. Perhaps they never even spoke about it. We don't know. Perhaps Reuben thought he got away with it, that there'd be no consequences until here, in Genesis 39, verses 3 and 4, where on his deathbed, Jacob denies Reuben his preeminence as the firstborn. The unseemly behavior of Reuben means that he will not inherit what he otherwise would have received. That privilege was now Joseph's. And this is commented on in 1 Chronicles chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. The sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, for he was the firstborn, but because he defiled his father's couch, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel, so that he could not be enrolled as the oldest son. I'll read verse 2 because we're going to consider this in a moment also. Though Judah became strong among his brothers and a chief came from him, Yet the birthright belonged to Joseph. The birthright belonged to Joseph. Now, the, the, the heart of Jacob's message to Joseph here in these opening verses of chapter 48 is in verse 5. Your two sons are mine. Your two sons are mine. Joseph and the rest knew that this meant adoption of the boys into the places of tribal leadership. 
Now, if we want to learn why things were done this way, I mean, we can only say with Paul, we can only say, oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom, the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. We can look for many reasons. Um, This is the sovereignty of God. Um, Administered through divine revelation to a dying man. Somehow Jacob knew this this was God's plan. This was what to be carried out. And through faith, he did so. And yet all of history was subsequently touched by this, as we'll see. Now, also very interesting, in Genesis 48, verse 5, Jacob refers to Joseph's sons in reverse order. He refers to them as Ephraim, Ephraim, and Manasseh, even though Manasseh was born first. So by naming Ephraim first before Manasseh, Jacob is already anticipating what is about to happen in verses 13 through 19. Summoning the boys to himself, Jacob proceeds to bless them. Verse 13. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand, toward his father's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand, toward Israel's right hand, and brought them near him. As the firstborn, Manasseh was to have Jacob's right hand placed upon his head indicating his preeminence as the firstborn son. But, verse 14, And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, The God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day. The angel who has redeemed me from all evil. Bless the boys. And in them let my name be carried on. And the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac. And let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. by placing his right hand on the head of Ephraim instead of Manasseh, Jacob gives him, Ephraim, the preeminence over his older brother. Again, in Hebrews 11, 21, this blessing of Joseph's sons is recorded as a great act of faith. Why? Why? I think it's found in the words, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth, this blessing demonstrates Jacob's hope for the future predicated on the promises of God. He believed the promises of God. Even when Jacob was dying in a strange land, he believed the promise that Abraham's descendants would be numbered as the stars in the sky and Israel would become a great nation. True faith, church, it helps us to see beyond the grave. Amen? And then we read in verses 17 through 20, When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. 
And he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, I know, my son, I know. He also, meaning Manasseh, he shall become a people and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day saying, but you Israel will pronounce blessings saying, God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. So Joseph, not understanding what was happening, he thinks his father is confused and mistaken. He thinks his father is maybe absentmindedly placing the wrong, his right hand on the wrong son. But Jacob is emphatic here. He knows exactly what he's doing. He's emphatic that Ephraim should be blessed as firstborn ahead of Manasseh. And subsequent history reveals that the Ephraimites became one of the leading tribes. Uh, with Joshua, an Ephraimite, guiding the people into the promised land. But, as we are about to see, it is not through the Ephraimites, despite what just took place. It is not through Ephraim that the promised offspring of the woman will come. The Ephraimites are later rejected by God in favor of Judah. And we read about this in Psalm 78. Psalm 78, a very lengthy psalm. It shows God how God led and dealt with <coughs> uh, Israel um, in the time of Samuel. Uh, his faithfulness to them and his dealings with them in the midst of their uh, unbelief and rebellion at that time. And we read in Psalm 78, verse 65, Then the Lord awoke as from sleep, like a strong man shouting because of wine. And he put his adversaries to rout. He put them to everlasting shame. He rejected the tent of Joseph. He did not choose the tribe of Ephraim, but he chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loves. He built his sanctuary like the high heavens, like the earth, which he has founded forever. He chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds. From following the nursing ewes, he brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, Israel, his inheritance. And this, of course, is uh, reflected uh, in Jacob's words. Um, to Judah in Genesis chapter 49. In Genesis chapter 49, we read in the first two verses, Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. All right, so after blessing Joseph and his two sons, Jacob summons all his other sons together in order to indicate their future Destinies. Now understand, Jacob's words here are much more than mere wishes. 
this is a, a this is predictive. I mean, there's a predictive element to this. They concern days to come, and they're not just for his sons, but for their offspring as well. Now, close to death, Jacob pronounces on each of his sons a blessing. <clears throat> well, some of these statements are more of a blessing than others, but generally speaking, a blessing that uh, reflecting something of their past actions tells how their descendants will prosper in the future. Uh, and it's very obvious, uh, as you read chapter 49, that Jacob anticipates the greatest things for Joseph and for Judah. In fact, their blessings together make up about half of Jacob's speech here in chapter 49. And I just want to look right now at what Jacob says to Judah. Judah, starting in verse 8 of Genesis 49. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. <clears throat> From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choicest vine, he has washed his garments in wine and, has, and his vestures in, in his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Zebulun shall dwell at the shore of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships, and his border shall be at Sidon. What does this mean? What does that mean? Is that something for Judah to get excited about? <laughs> what does this mean? In answer to that, let me say this. When you study selected parts of the book of Genesis, such as we have been doing this summer with the story of Joseph, grasping the big picture of Genesis and keeping it in view is very important. And central to the big picture of Genesis is the family line, the lineage that forms the backbone of the entire book. And this, the importance of this lineage cannot be overstated all the way back in Genesis 3.15, beginning in Genesis 3.15, the offspring of the woman becomes the source of hope for the defeat of the serpent and the restoration of the earth and everything in it. And in due course, the offspring of the woman is traced, okay, from Seth, right, the third of Adam and Eve's sons, Seth, to Noah, a righteous man, who found favor with God so that God saved him and his family from being destroyed in the flood. From Noah, the family line moves to Abraham, in whom all the families of the earth will be blessed. Uh, when God establishes the covenant of circumcision with Abraham, the divine promise of blessing is uh, linked to a future royal descendant traced through Abraham's son, Isaac. Okay? So we go from Seth to Noah to Abraham, to Isaac. And as Genesis proceeds, the promise of blessing becomes 
intimately connected with the firstborn son. Yet, as we've already seen, this coincides with an unusual pattern within the book. And that unusual pattern is this. The status of firstborn does not always go to the son born first. When twins are born to Isaac, right, a long struggle takes place between Esau and his younger brother, Jacob. And after Esau sells his birthright to Jacob for just a bowl of stew, Jacob deceptively gets from Isaac the firstborn blessing, and with it, the status of the firstborn. And if we want to express that in terms that echo God's promise to Abraham, the blessing that Jacob received from Isaac affirms him, affirms Jacob, as the one through whom the royal line will continue. Right? So now we Seth, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Okay? Now, Joseph's promotion over Reuben to the status of firstborn. Now, we see that right in the beginning of the story of Joseph. When, 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 when Jacob favors him, and he, he gives him the code, and, and it elicits, of course, the, 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 the rage and the envy and the jealousy and the hatred of his brothers. Uh, we're already seeing Jacob, I mean, Joseph, uh, Joseph being elevated to that status of firstborn. And this initially indicates, or at least seems to indicate, that the potential royal line will continue through him. Right? Although he sold into slavery by his brothers, you know, his subsequent governorship of Egypt confirms that God is with him. And then later, the family now being reunited, uh, we have Jacob, as we just read, pronouncing the blessing of the firstborn on Joseph's younger son Ephraim. The future royal line is linked to the descendants of Ephraim. But, as we've just read in Genesis 49, there is yet another interesting twist, right? In spite of Joseph's importance, his older brother Judah undergoes a remarkable transformation, and kingship is also to be associated with his descendants. And that's what this long and very positive blessing which we just read in verses 8 through 13, is all about. We are told that while up to this point, royalty has been associated chiefly with Joseph, from chapter 37 onward, Judah is portrayed now as being in high esteem by his brothers, right? That's part of the, your, your brothers will hold you uh, with... Judah, your brothers shall praise you. They shall hold you uh, in high esteem. Verse 8 said that his father's sons shall bow down to him. Even more than that, the nation will bring tribute to him. And, and that one of his descendants, Judah's descendants, not Joseph's descendants, one of Judah's descendants, to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. That's in verse 10. And in these words... Jacob is predicting the great empire of David, but more importantly, the greater empire of Christ, the second David. And it is this, really, that sets the tone for the chief aspect of, of messianic expectation in the Old Testament. 
The way that Abraham's blessing will come to the Gentiles will be by the ultimate heir of David reigning and incorporating the Gentiles into his righteous, benevolent empire. And this explains why the installation of Jesus as the Davidic king is so important in the New Testament, with the implication that the long-awaited time of enlightening the Gentiles has finally arrived. And to emphasize further Judah's potential royal status, he's compared to a lion in verse 9 of the blessing we just read. One of his descendants will hold a scepter and a ruler's staff, the symbols of kingship. Verse 10. So, even though beyond Genesis, the line of Ephraim assumes leadership of Israel, when Joshua leads the people into the land of Canaan, in the time of Samuel, the Ephraimites are rejected when God chooses David to establish the first kingly dynasty in Israel, as we just read a moment ago in Psalm 78. Again, eventually the divine promises linked to the family line in Genesis come to fulfillment in Jesus Christ. This is all about Christ, amen? This is all about Christ. This is all pointing to Christ. Everything taking place here will have its ultimate fulfillment, its ultimate destination in Christ, the incarnate Son of God, who becomes, by adoption, the Son of David, the son of Abraham, which is how he is described in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. By looking forward to a special king who will mediate God's blessing to humanity, Genesis, the book of Genesis, provides the foundation upon which the rest of the Bible stands. Amen? And that blessing, first and foremost, is the blessing of salvation the blessing of forgiveness of sins and reconciliation with God with the promise of everlasting life to all who believe. Christ came, he said, to call sinners to repentance, to make disciples. Through his death on the cross, he paid the penalty for the sin of everyone who would ever believe in him, put their trust in him, or forgiveness and everlasting life. And I would encourage each and every one of you here who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior to turn to him today in faith and repentance. It may not seem like you may not have realized it when you walked in this morning, but this ancient text describing an old man's death and his final words to his, his, his sons, have more relevance for you today than you could ever imagine. Because it, it, it furthers God's plan of, revenge, uh, of redemption. Having its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ, who came to save his people from their sins. Again, Hebrews 11, verse 21, By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. You know, when the last words of any 
man, any woman, the last words of any human being uh, are significant, potentially significant and very important. The last words of a man like Jacob, a man of God, are eminently important. But when those final words, when we are told that those words are an expression of faith, that God finds so pleasing that he includes it in this eternal record, we need to listen, amen? And we need to understand. Hear the words of Donald Gray Barnhouse as we close. In describing this scene, Dr. Barnhouse says, the main purpose of Jacob's life was about to be fulfilled. What he did on his deathbed was the magnificent triumph of his life. In great faith, he uttered profound truths. Jacob wished his son to have, as their last memory of him, the scene in which he gave God all credit and glory. This would enable them to stand firm in the days of slavery and in the furnace of judgment. He goes on to say, The greatest legacy any man can leave to his children is unswerving faith in God and the memory of a testimony that gave God all the glory and witness to his unchanging faithfulness. God is not ashamed to be called the God of Jacob because in this scene, the spirit triumphed over the flesh and God was acknowledged as all in all. When our earthly inheritance is gone, when lands are eroded, stocks depreciated, and money spent, the legacy of unwavering faith in God will be the most that we can pass on to our children. And may that kind of faith be found in us. Amen? Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you for your word to us this morning. <coughs> and as we are privileged, you allow us to witness the unfolding of your great plan, the furtherance of your great plan of redemption. First declared to us in Genesis 3.15, and now here in the closing chapters of, of, of that great book, uh, we see the way all of history up to that time and right through down to our time and beyond is moving toward the culmination, the fulfillment of that great plan. We never could have imagined in our fallenness and in our sinfulness that we would be included in that plan. But we have been. By your grace, through faith in Christ, in Christ alone, we have been included in that plan. We are the recipients of the blessings promised to Abraham and to Jacob. And we thank you and we, we praise you for that. May that reality, may that hope sustain us uh, today and every day, especially as we face uh, uncertain and what are uh, certainly to be increasingly 
difficult times to come. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.